Happy New Year to everybody, both in the room and those joining online. I welcome you here to Axis this weekend. One fine day, Jesus found himself at a wedding. Now, as we just heard, a wedding was a week-long event, and to run out of wine was a social catastrophe because it... it the, the hospitality value in Jewish culture was one of their highest values. And to run out of supplies at a wedding, therefore, was a real shame on the host. Now, interestingly, only John records it in his Gospels. Matthew, Mark and Luke skip over this whole ordeal of water into wine. I have a theory. They were good Wesleyans. They're having nothing to do with this water to wine story. But John is a well-known Baptist. In fact, I have a theory he might have even been a secret Anglican and he needed to justify his love of red wine. So he tells us this story in the second chapter. Anyway, let's skip the controversy and get on with this, this idea of Jesus turning water into wine. You're going to find it in John chapter 2. If you've got a Bible, begin turning there. If you're following on in the version notes, I encourage you to open those in the app. Uh, look for Access Church events and uh, under events and then you'll find all the notes to the message. So this was the beginning of Jesus' public ministry. He's been the Messiah all along. We learned last week, Emmanuel means God with us. So for 30 years, God has been with the people, only they didn't recognise him. He hadn't done anything miraculous yet to identify his character and his nature and his identity. And so he, Jesus is obscure. He's staying in the background. He's absolutely divine, yes, but unrecognisable up until this point. However, John chapter 2 changes everything. We're not going to pick up the story in chapter 2, though, this weekend. We're actually going back to chapter 1 because... Because it's very, very connected. You've heard me say before that the Bible was one continuous document in its original language and the chapters there are just for our benefit so we know where to find a particular story. But in the original manuscript, there's no such things as chapters and verse. So it's one continual story. And what we go find when we go back into the previous chapter is this little crack appearing in terms of, a, or a bubble underneath the surface in terms of people beginning to realise who Jesus is. And the first keen fellow who's cottoned on to this Messiah is Philip. And we pick up the reading then in John 1.45 where he goes, John 1.45, Philip went to look for Nathaniel and told him, we have found the very person that Moses and the prophets wrote about. His name is Jesus, the son of Joseph from Nazareth. Nazareth, exclaimed Nathaniel, can anything good come from Nazareth? Come and see for yourself, Philip replied. So Nathaniel essentially says, brother, you've lost your mind. There's nothing good that can come from Nazareth, but he's wise enough to check out Philip's claim. And Nathaniel arrives on the scene and gets a surprising greeting. In verse 47, as they approach Jesus, uh, this is what he says to Nathaniel, here is a genuine son of Israel, a man of complete integrity. How do you know about me? Nathaniel asked. Jesus replied, I could see you under the fig tree before Philip found you. Then Nathaniel exclaimed, Rabbi, you are the son of God, the king of Israel. Jesus asked him, do you believe this just because I told you I saw you under the fig tree? You will see greater things than this. Then he said, I tell you the truth, you'll see all of heaven open and the angels of God going up and down on the Son of Man, the one who is the stairway between heaven and earth. Chapter break, end of chapter one, beginning of chapter two, 
but the story continues. In fact, just builds in momentum from what we've just read. Remember what Jesus just said to Nathaniel. Don't lose that. It's super vital. You're about to see greater things, Nathaniel. You're about to see greater things. And then the next day rolls around with the water into wine. Was Nathaniel at that wedding? Yes, based on verse 2 he was. Even more interesting than this though, the fact that he was just an attendee, was the location of the wedding. The wedding happened in Cana, which is Nathaniel's hometown. We learn that in John chapter 21. So this is big. Jesus starts his public ministry in Nathaniel's own backyard. Is the story connected? Absolutely. John chapter 2. The next day there was a wedding celebration in the village of Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there and he and his disciples were also invited to the celebration. The wine supply ran out during the festivities, so Jesus' mother told him, they have no more wine. Dear woman, that's not our problem, Jesus replied. My time has not yet come. His mother told the servants, and I think she gave them a wink as she says this. Do whatever he tells you. Standing nearby were six stone water jars used for Jewish ceremonial washing. Each could hold 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus told the servants, fill the jars with water. When the jars had been filled, he said, now dip some out and take it to the master of ceremonies. So the servants followed his instructions. When the master of ceremonies tasted the water that was now wine, not knowing where it had come from, He called the bridegroom over. Verse 10, a host always serves the best wine first. And then when everyone has had a lot to drink, he brings out the less expensive wine. But you have kept the best until now. This miraculous sign at Cana in Galilee was the first time Jesus revealed his glory and his disciples believed in him. We dare not miss that final verse as the climax to the story. Jesus revealed his glory and his disciples believed in him. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading of his holy word. As we engage in reading the scriptures, it's always important that we train ourselves to notice more than the headlines. The headline here, of course, is Jesus turned water into wine. But as we explore this text further, and even the verse we just read, I'm convinced that actually that is the highlight of this. And it's because of what John 20 says. Now, it's not going to be on screen. You can check it later. John 20 says, there's so many miraculous signs Jesus did that aren't recorded. So many, they're like a daily event. And yet the things that were written down were for this reason, that we would believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God. The whole point of Jesus' miracles was to create believers, to create followers, not just to get people who like sitting in the front row of the circus. That's not the point. And sometimes we miss the heart of the matter, the substance. We miss the cake because we're so bamboozled by the icing and the sprinkles on top. And we miss the substance of the story. We miss going deeper in what was really going on. We need to read the scriptures to see the deeper meaning below the text. And we'd be foolish just to get to John 2 and go, cool party trick, Jesus. I'm definitely inviting you to my next New Year's. 
That's not the point. There's more here than meets the eye. There's four pillars that sit underneath this story that I want you to notice this weekend that I think kind of act as some kind of spark to Jesus acting in the way he did. Eventually, that is, because at first we saw that he seemed very disinterested in helping the situation, but he eventually gets drawn into it. So four human qualities that I want you to notice that sit alongside this divine supernatural event. Two of these qualities belong to Nathaniel, which is why it was important we read about him, and two of these qualities belong to Mary. But Nathaniel, let's start with him. He's a player in this story. Don't miss what chapter 50 of, sorry, verse 50 of John 1 said, where Jesus gave this promise to Nathaniel, you're going to see greater things. That's part of the platform of what sits underneath this water to wine story, yeah? The humility and integrity of Nathaniel. That's what we see from Nathaniel in his interactions with Jesus. This is part of the hidden story that's the background to the water into wine. Jesus has this incredible encounter with Nathaniel the day before where he promises that a spectacular thing is coming up. Now think about that. Nathaniel gets this pre-warning. Nathaniel gets a special honour of an inside lane into what Jesus is about to do. Out of all the people Jesus met, he gives Nathaniel a heads up. Remember, his identity is a secret until now. And yet he gives these hints to Nathaniel. Why? Well, we notice Nathaniel is a guy with deep humility. And in Scripture, it's quite evident that humble people have a special place in God's heart. Humble people have a special place in God's heart. How do we know Nathaniel's humble? I think because of the way he responds to his mate Philip coming over. Philip comes rushing over, having just met Jesus. Nathaniel's at his local cafe. Uh, there's probably only one in the town of Cana. It's a very small town. And he's there at the Fig Tree Cafe, chilling out, enjoying his double shot. And Philip bursts in the room and says, Nathaniel, 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 I've found him, I've found him. And he's like, steady down, mate. What have you found? The Messiah, the one we've all been looking for. Well, chill out, Phil. You just knocked over my coffee. Well, that didn't matter because Nathaniel was about to spit out the remainder when Philip says, what's next? I've found him, I've found him, I've found him, and he's from Nazareth. Nazareth? You can't be serious, mate. Has anything good ever come from Nazareth? He says in verse 46, he's in disbelief. He's not at all on board with Philip's news. God won't be coming via Nazareth. That's Nathaniel's conviction. Here's what I love about him, though. He's humble enough to go, just maybe, just maybe, just maybe I'm wrong and you're right. That's humility right there. Just maybe I need to be open to the idea that God's going to come in a way that doesn't fit the well-defined formula that I had in mind. I wonder how much of the time we lock God out of our circumstances because he doesn't quite fit the box that we had in mind that he should work within. This is Nathaniel's humility. And we also see integrity in Nathaniel. Before he's even had a proper introduction with Jesus, he hasn't even really eyeballed Jesus yet. He hasn't even given Jesus the elbow tap. He comes up along towards Jesus and Jesus calls him out. 
still wise in the distance. Here is a genuine son of Israel, a man of complete integrity. And Daniel's weirded out by that. He's like, huh, what are you talking about? Who are you? And then Jesus gets even weirder in the next verse and says, I saw you under the fig tree, Nathaniel, before Philip even found you. Nathaniel's mind's officially blown. And in the following verse, he says, truly you are the son of God. He can't believe what he's stumbled upon. And Jesus essentially says, you haven't seen nothing yet, mate. Wait until tomorrow. Wait until tomorrow. Then things are really going to heat up. Right before we get to the water into wine story, we have this character, Nathaniel. He's sitting there in the background, but a player in this story, in this interaction with Jesus, a man of humility, a man of integrity. We can feel sure about his integrity because of the greeting he gets from Jesus. It's spectacular. Jesus spots this guy coming up and says, he is a man of complete integrity. Imagine being badged with that by Jesus. He is a man of complete integrity. If we're wanting God to move in the coming year, I think these qualities matter. Humility, integrity, humility. One way to get God offside, to really tick him off, is just one requirement really, get proud. That'll do the trick every single time. He'll run a mile. God will leave us to it once we get powered up within ourselves. God will disappear off the scene. With humility, though, we attract God on the scene. The Bible says this over and over again. Humility is like the favourite lounge chair that God loves to sit in. It's make his home amongst. He's very comfortable with humility. The prominent scripture in the Old Testament we talks about the presence of God coming in and changing even our whole nation. Starts with this. If my people will humble themselves, humble themselves. If we long for God to do extraordinary things in this new year, our humility will matter. So too will our integrity. Second Timothy says so. In a wealthy home, some utensils are made of gold and silver, some are made of wood and clay. The expensive utensils are used for special occasions and the cheap ones for everyday use. If you keep yourself pure, you'll be a special utensil for honourable use. Your life will be clean. You'll be ready for the master to use. We'll look at that passage more deeply in a couple of weeks' time. For now, we clip it. And I'm struck by verse 21. If you keep yourself pure, then what? Well, it opens up all sorts of possibilities for God to move in your life. It's kind of like this favourite kitchen utensil that you use every single time you cook. God's got those too, and they're people that are pure. Every time he's looking to do something, he, he selects someone with this purity. Nathaniel has these things going on. And if he didn't have humility, he would have missed seeing the Messiah altogether. But his humility and his integrity set him up to see a miracle. There's another player here in this story. It's Mary, the mother of Jesus. I want you to notice the initiative and submission of Mary. We're going to unpack these two together because they sit together. They sit in tension, but they actually sit together. They must be together in our lives. Initiative 
and submission. Mary has brave initiative going on in this story and she has tender submission rolled into one. Through Mary, we see how to engage with God for a breakthrough. Because on the one hand, she's very demanding. Jesus, we have a situation and we need you to step in and sort it out. We need you to come over here and get involved in this predicament. And Jesus is evasive. He's like, dear lady, not my problem. Not my problem. A quick aside. There's much speculation why Jesus didn't refer to her as mum. He refers to her as woman or lady. And it's fascinating that he would do that. The best explanation we have is with this being the beginning of his public ministry, Jesus is distancing himself from the family relationship and saying, if you are going to come to me from now on, it's going to be as Lord with me addressing me as Lord, not as son anymore. Things are shifting. I'm now a 30-year-old adult. I'm no longer a young boy, mum, and I'm not taking orders from you anymore in that way. His loyalty had shifted and Jesus was an age and stage where life for him was all about being in submission to his heavenly father. Back to the point, Mary calls Jesus in and this shows her initiative. And then there's this disregard from Jesus. Not my show, lady. Let somebody else sort it out. Her initiative seems to be dishonoured. But notice, she's not done. She's not done. She's not going anywhere. Even if he's not interested in helping, and it looks like everybody's stuck with this unfortunate situation, Mary continues and waits and stays. I don't know about you, I reckon you've had times in your life where you've prayed and it seems like heaven is silent and so you kind of just give up. You don't endure. Mary isn't offended by the apparent coldness of Jesus. She turns to the servants and goes, do whatever he says. Do whatever he says. Well, what's he about to do? Nothing. He's already said, I'm not interested in helping. He, he, he wasn't at all planning to do anything, or so it seems. It's like a triple whammy here. Lady, not my problem, not my time. But she will continue to follow his lead in submission, even after her initial request is buffeted by Jesus. Her boldness goes on, but now through the lens of surrender, now through the lens of surrender. She's not demanding, but she's staying attentive to what Jesus is doing next. Jesus just given Mary a no, and she goes, okie dokie, but I'm staying. She didn't take his no as a relational repellent that drove her away and created distance with him she took this now as an opportunity for a deeper surrender into his will. I need to say that again. Some of you have taken a no from God as a relational repellent. You're like, well, if that's how you're going to treat me then, if you're not going to come to the party, then I'm out of here. But really, it's just the no's are a stepping stone to know God in a deeper way to experience God even more. But that deeper way 
the pathway to that deeper intimacy with God is surrender. Just staying there and saying, well, looks like I'm stuck, but I'm not really because I'm going to remain attentive and I'll just do whatever you say next. This is a really, really good space to land. Does it feel nice? feels terrible. feels shocking. feels anything but nice. But this is a wonderful space to be in. The drought was hideous in Victoria in 2012. I remember it clearly. Farmers were struggling like you wouldn't believe. Many of them were walking off farms. Some of them were committing suicide. Things were really, really dire. And churches back there at the time began gathering and holding these public rallies where they would pray to God for rain. Like the state, probably the nation, but certainly the state, that was my home state at the time. Things were desperate. And churches were coming together. They were, they were taking initiative to try and see heaven break in and make a difference to this situation because it was so, so bad. I recall a particular function where churches were gathered and the person on the microphone up the front, and remember how this, like things were desperate. The person on the microphone up the front said this, God, we command you to send rain. We command you, God, to send rain. Now that's initiative gone wrong. We don't get to command God for anything. He gets to command us. We don't get to command him. That was taking things way too far and missing the submission side altogether. On the other hand, I see people in churches who never ask God for anything. It's like they're scared to get a no. Their reasoning goes like this. I don't want to bother God with my small thing. I'll just go and see a doctor. I'll just bear with it. I'll just put up with it. They don't dare ask for a miracle. There's no initiative. There's no boldness. And we won't find the miracle. We won't find grace to help in the time of need without the boldness to come and ask. As you go through the New Testament, you'll be hard-pressed to find an account of where Jesus, the Son of God, heaven on earth, steps in and makes a difference in a situation without being asked. There's exceptions to the rule. Peter was fishing one night and says, Jesus comes along, says, you caught anything? And he says, no, and he says, throw your net on the other side. There's, there's generic examples like that. There's another time where Jesus is walking down the road and he sees a fig tree and he curses it. Nobody asked him to do that. But in other words, it wasn't a very positive outcome for the fig tree. But when it comes to humans getting help, getting divine intervention, most of the time, they're desperate. They're desperate. Blind Bartimaeus screams out, Son of David, have mercy on me. The woman with the issue of blood works her way through the crowd, thousands of people, and says, if I can just touch him, if I can just touch him, I'll be made well. Jairus comes on behalf of his daughter, begging, begging for Jesus to intervene. And he does. Most of the time, most of the time, humans sparked divine activity. Here we see Mary initiate a move of God. 
I have a very clear sense that if we're going to see God do mighty things in the coming year, we need to grow the skill, the practice of the big ask, the big ask, the big bold ask, but alongside that, the big surrender. The big surrender. Lord, okay, I'm just going to wait here and I'm just going to do whatever you say. Don't be the passive person that just goes, well, well, I'll just sit here and wait for heaven to do the miracle. No, 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 no. Get in there. Get after it. Plead with God. But offer him the big surrender right alongside that. This is a tension of initiative and surrender sitting alongside. Be like Mary. Imitate her. Let her boldness and her yielding be your model. Go after God with a big ask and go after God with the big surrender. Let's bring all this home back to us. Who are we in this story? Well, hopefully we are both Nathaniel and Mary, but ultimately we're all the servants, the servants in the story who are told to just add water. What a crazy thing. What a stupid response to such a predicament. Just find the basins, get them under the tap and fill them up. What's that going to do? How's that going to help? Imagine being there and applying rationale to that instruction. I mean, you take the water to your boss. He's probably going to give you the sack for insulting. Why are you bringing that to me? You're not getting a shift next week acting like a clown. The wedding needed wine, not tap water. How's this helping? Just add water. So often there's a disconnect between what we think will bring a breakthrough from the Lord and what it means to actually obey him. Often it, in human terms it makes us look really, really, really silly. And here's my challenge for you this weekend. Sometimes the miraculous is tied to the ridiculous. And we've got to do the ridiculous thing to see the miraculous thing. Like these servants here at the back end of the story. This is the pointy end. Forget about Nathaniel for a moment. Forget about Mary for a moment. It boils down to these guys holding this basin under the tap and just adding water. No doubt as they're doing that, the thought in their mind is, what are we doing this for? No doubt people walking past are like, what are you doing? What are you doing? What are you doing to solve the dilemma we're in? I'm just filling up the basin. That's what I was told to do. There's only one right answer to that. The master said so. So the bottom line that sits even deeper down here than Mary or Nathaniel is someone turning on the tap, not having a clue what the result was going to be, and all they had to go on was a word from Jesus. Just add water. It makes no sense, but they did it. Someone I know back in Victoria, I'll call her Michelle, it's not a real name, I don't have her permission to use the story. But she found herself in a, in a petrol station one night and it was like the end of the day, quite late at night, 
and she just did the thing, got her fuel, paid the bill, drove off. It's what you do, right? It's what you do when you're getting petrol. And as she's driving off, she felt a whisper, we can now say from God, at the time, very, very questionable. The whisper was this, go back in that petrol station and do a handstand. And she's like, no. But the prompting got stronger and stronger. You know what it's like when you're wrestling with the Holy Spirit? Maybe you don't, but this is what it's like. Sometimes he calls you to do something really, really silly, but he won't let you go. He won't give you the peace until you do. And so she's getting further and further away from this petrol station and the prompting getting stronger and stronger and stronger. Go back. Go back and do a handstand in that service station reception. This is so bizarre, but she drives back and she enters in and she does a handstand. And the man behind the counter breaks down in tears. And he said, I was going to go home and commit suicide. And I said to God, if you're real, you've got to bring somebody in here tonight and they've got to do a handstand. Are you willing to fill up jugs with water? Are you willing to do stuff that, from a human perspective, seems ridiculous? Because often that's where the miraculous is. It's in our simple obedience to just do things that just seem, to the human logical way of thinking, ridiculous, crazy, makes no sense. But oh, for the obedience to just add water. Would you stand for prayer as we close? Oh Lord, our lives are in your hands. And we turn to you in faith and trust this weekend. And we say, God, make 2021 our best year ever. Not because we're anything special, but because we commit ourselves to a deeper obedience, to just add water, to just do the things that you say to do. Even when to our minds they make no sense, we ask for a greater trust, God. To just say, okay, Lord, if this is the way you're leading me, I'll do it. We hand our lives over to you in this new year. God, we want to be your people. We want to bring glory to Jesus. We want people to be drawn to follow him because of how we live. Have your way, Lord.